everyone. I'm really excited to let you know about the science and spirituality salons I'm now hosting. During these intimate events, a scientifically verified psychic medium will give all of you readings, and I will give a talk on the science and evidence that changed my mind about an afterlife. This will also be an amazing opportunity to get to meet some of you in person or virtually and to share more about all the science and data that transformed my worldview and got me through my worst days. These can be hosted in your home, in a nearby cafe with a private room, or they can even be virtual. I've hosted a few already and they were really special, fascinating, emotional, evidential. So if you're interested in getting a small group together over dinner, brunch, drinks, coffee, to learn more about the science and to get evidential medium readings, send me an email at hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put science and spirituality in the title. Today's guest is George Williams, PhD. I met George at the SSE Society for Scientific Exploration Conference. If you don't know them, check them out. George has a wide interdisciplinary background. As an undergraduate, he studied engineering at Vanderbilt, then worked at IBM for eight years. He switched to a different direction and studied literature at Maharishi International University, where he also became very curious about the notion of group consciousness. Then he went on and pursued a doctorate in economics at Northwestern University. Since the late 90s, he has worked as an economist, but during that time, he began to focus on what the psi data can tell us about the nature of consciousness. You should definitely read his papers, since he has some fascinating theories, such as the brain as a filter, which he refers to as the filter-integrated information theory, which we will discuss today. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a science skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Today, I'm speaking with George Williams, and I met him at the SSE Conference, Society for Scientific Exploration, and he just had some fascinating stuff that we'll be talking about today, fascinating theories. Thank you very much, Liz, 
I, uh, I just want to say that a lot of the things I'm interested in are not exactly my day job, but I've been interested in consciousness for many years. Way back in the day, I was, uh, I think I got interested in this through my time at Maharishi International University, which everyone there practices transcendental meditation. And they actually had some very interesting studies where when large groups of people meditate, the ambient, I guess you could say, crime or social indicators reflected a more calming, more, um, you know, in some ways more harmonious overall quality of of the area. So, um, So I got interested in consciousness. However, my day job is more in economics. But I do ultimately want to try to tie those two <laughs> very different things together. So I'm interested in sort of collective consciousness, and I'm interested in uh, how we might start to think about it. That's one of the key motivating things in my in my work and interests. And I know some of your theory explains a little bit about how that meditation phenomena could work. So you call this the filter integrated information theory, correct? Yes, in a recent paper, I have, I, and it's currently under review, but I try to suggest wh- how we might think of our brain as a filter rather than something that produces conscious experience. And when our brain is gone, we're gone. Instead, the idea is that the brain is in some ways um, a filter or tuner. So this is not really a, a new idea, though. The philosophers William James and Henry Bergson argued that, we, that it's probably better to think of our brains as a kind of filter or tuner. So, for example, you might think of a radio receiver. I guess people don't have these so much anymore, but it used to be back in the old days where if you wanted to hear, say, an FM radio station, you would tune it to a station and it would it would and you would hear the music. But you would understand that the source was really coming from electromagnetic waves in the environment. It wasn't really the device itself. So, so, so this idea that our brains might be tuning into a deeper kind of field of consciousness is basically the idea in a nutshell. There's a particular theory of consciousness called integrated information theory, which is basically suggests that the way our brains are structured so they actually have some mathematics that suggests that the, the nature of how our, the neurons in our brains are integrated together is basically what produces our conscious theory. So what I'm trying to do is suggest, well, it may not be the brain or how the brain is actually structured, but information theory might give us a good idea of how our brain filters or tunes into this sort of deeper aspect of reality, which I believe to be the source of conscious experience. So our consciousness is stored almost in, I know you used the radio analogy, a one today would be maybe like the cloud, like our consciousness is stored in a cloud bank or type of cloud field. And it entangles with our brain to create a human conscious experience. And it filters, like the brain filters where we only see a portion of reality aligned with the human experience, such as we don't see infrared or ultraviolet, for example. We don't hear the sounds that dogs hear. That's kind of what a simplified version of what you're talking about, correct? Yeah. I don't think I would use the word necessarily stored. It might be, for example, I mean, I can imagine that this reality 
is just something that, you know, we, we, we could imagine all possible conscious experiences, you know, what a frog experiences, what a bad experience is, all the kinds of things. And then our biology, if you will, tunes into a particular, think of it as a particular kind of tuner so that we can experience human, you know, experiences and so forth. But it's, it's very interesting that it might also store, it, might, there, it also may have the capacity for memory. Those are very interesting ideas to explore. And I know in some of your writing, you have a lot of reasons you think this, and you've mentioned that you think there's some good parapsychological psi-based experiments that could back this up. Would, do you mind talking about a few of the ones that you think are the best and why you think they back this up? Yeah, well, psi is a field of study that has been going on for decades. I think J.B. Ryan in the 40s began testing people with cards and, uh, and seeing if they could guess the cards without seeing the cards. And so there's, there's actually been, for all these decades, different experimental protocols have developed, and they've been they've testing various things like telepathy, the idea that, you know, someone's mind can somehow maybe pick up some sort of information that might be in someone else's mind, the idea of remote viewing, that is that we might be able to perceive somehow objects or aspects of an environment that's very, very far away. Then there's also precognition, the idea that we might in some sense anticipate or have some way of sensing a future event. And then there's also, I guess, what we what you could call anomalous mind over matter interaction, where we actually have some effect or influence on a physical process you know, at some at some distance away. So these anomalous kinds of cognition and anomalous kinds of influence uh, have been grouped together and called psi. And I think that in general, what I've been in, in my own work, I've been arguing that we are rooted in a deeper field or ground of consciousness. And this consciousness is also a field of potentiality. So let's, we know in quantum mechanics, the standard wave function or the standard way, the, the standard equation describes the world as kind of a wave function where the different possible states are governed by this kind of what's called the Schrodinger equation. And so it's, it's almost as if at a fundamental level, the, the, the subatomic particles can only be described in terms of potential or in terms of probabilities. So what I would what I would argue is that the maybe the best way to interpret this Can you explain that just a little further? I know not I don't think most people listening aren't scientists just tapping into this and learning this. So would you mind explaining probability and wave collapse a little and what you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. So in quantum mechanics there's a there the, the standard equations called the Schrodinger equation and that involves let's say, different possible states, let's say the position of an electron or the spin of an electron. So it's an equation that describes not the, not the positions of electrons, but actually the possible states. And it happens that the possible states, let's say, of an electron, for example, is entangled with the possible spin or position of another electron. And by entangled, I mean that there's sort of a, a correlation that holds 
even far away, so that it seems as if they're not that they're connected in a way that really is outside of our normal space-time boundaries. So basically, the wave function is a way of describing the subatomic world, but in terms of probabilities or possible states. Now, you mentioned collapse. One of the interpretations of, in fact, perhaps the most common interpretation, is that when a measurement occurs, that is when we want to pin down and find out, okay, where that electron is, what happens is the probabilities go away, and then we have the definite information of the particle itself. So that's that's called a kind of collapse of the wave function. And that also means we know, or at least we have good probability on where the where, where its entangled partners are as well. So basically, in a nutshell, quantum mechanics, you have this wave function. It describes the probabilities and the, and the possible states. And then when you make an observation, then we learn where it is, but we also learn about its partner states that it's entangled with. Now, there are other interpretations, though, and this is what gets kind of messy about quantum mechanics. Another interpretation is that the possible states, when we learn about one possible state, the other possible states are existing somewhere but in another universe. So that's the Everett interpretation, where when we take a measurement, the universe in some ways splits, okay? Now, another interpretation is um, we have, I guess it's David Bohm's hidden variables interpretation, where there's no collapse, it's just that there's an inherent uncertainty, and that's where the probabilities come from. And, and, and when we try to take a measurement, because we're entangled with what we're trying to measure, then we can't really pin down anything except for the probabilities. Now, Bowman later work suggested something similar to what I think is the right idea in that, that there's this deeper underlying quantum ground. He used the term implicate order to describe this deeper aspect of reality. And, and I think that a lot of the psi data is also consistent with his framework as well. In fact, David Bohm, very famous physicist who, who contributed enormously, he actually has written some papers speculating how in his framework we could explain the, the psi data or some aspects of the psi data. In some of your writings, you really delved into a few of the psi experiments and I know you mentioned quite a few times one of my favorites, the Global Consciousness Project. Do you want to explain a bit about that and how it ties in, why you think that's a strong backup of your theory? Yeah, the Global Consciousness Project is a very, very interesting experiment. Roger Nelson is a a, a psi researcher who's actually developed a network of computers all over the world that basically monitor the output of random number generators. And these random number generators just simply produce streams of ones and zeros. And because it's quantum-based, it's purely random. It's not just pseudo-random. A random number generator, just to clarify a little bit, is a machine that randomly emits ones and zeros. So there have been a lot of psi-based studies and research that when people focus and having it emit more ones or more zeros, there is an effect and it stops emitting a random amount of 
ones or zeros and tends to go in the favor of the number that the meditator or person in the experiment is trying to mentally push it. The Global Consciousness Project is an experiment conducted for over 20 years by Dr. Roger Nelson, where they've placed a variety of random number generators around the world and see if they're getting a non-random amount of ones or zeros. And the theory is for a random number generator that, like flipping a coin, it would be 50% heads, 50% tails. So random number generators tend to admit 50% ones, 50% zeros. And so then in the Global Consciousness Project, these random number generators tend to admit a random amount of ones and a random amount of zeros, 50%, 50%. And then as we discuss during world events, the information tends to behave not randomly. So the interesting hypothesis that he was interested in is when groups of people may be responding to some kind of important world event, or maybe even a, an event that was particularly important to the people in a particular area, if they would respond in a way that would affect these random streams of ones and zeros, and he found over a period of time, there were significant effects. So he would find that, the, for example, um, and I think Dean Radin also worked with him on this, that during the September 11th terrorist attacks, that the largest deviation that happened that year was on that date. They also found that the death of Princess Diana, I think also as well Mother Teresa, they found that these very significant, meaningful global events had a tendency, and I think we can't really observe people's emotions, but I think the, the inference is that people in large groups are responding in very strong emotions. And these strong emotions are influencing these random number generators. And of course, it's very, what's also very interesting is because there are a lot of experiments where you're testing people's ability to consciously affect a random number generator. Dean Radin has come out with some experiments involving the double slit experiment. But people are not aware of these in this particular type of experiment. They're not aware. So somehow they're influencing them just, I guess, through their emotions. So now how does my own theory or theories, how does that fit in? Well, what I argue is that the fundamental ground of our reality is this kind of like field of, it's not only a field of consciousness, but it's also a field of potentiality. So large groups of people responding in a kind of way, sharing these emotions is, I believe, having a way of affecting the probabilities that are sort of at the root of our reality. We can measure them through this global network. So anyway, that in a nutshell, <laughs> I think is the idea. Do you think one of the things is that so many people are having, or the whole world almost is having an intense emotion? Or is it you think that they're all focused on the exact same thing? That's a great question. So Roger does pinpoint with the dates, the time of particular events. So it is a response to an event. And I think he has found that there are some, let's say, more regional events. So if you live in a certain region where, let's say, 
maybe there's an earthquake or some sort of severe weather, that would have a, a stronger effect around that region than in other parts of the world. So it's definitely affecting a region. You know, you could argue that it's hard to observe what people are actually feeling, what's their subjective experience. But I would have a tendency to think that something like, you know, the terrorist attacks would inspire a kind of common sense of sadness, perhaps a sense of anger. And while you're right, different people will be experienced, there'll be differences, but there's a common emotional that's sharing. And, and that's what I think the idea is going on. Yeah, I would assume 9-11 pretty much, while people had different emotions, some were terrified, some were grief stricken, some were angry. One thing that stands out to me about the Global Consciousness Project, and I would love your thoughts on this, and also how this ties into your theory, is I believe Dr. Roger Nelson noticed that so all the ones and zeros normally, you know, you'd expect 50% ones, 50% zeros overall within, you know, reasonable deviation, since they're random, kind of similar to a coin toss. And then, you know, when these huge world events where all attention is focused on the same thing and very emotional, they start behaving non-randomly. That's shocking, but it gets to another level of shock that this randomness starts to occur a few hours before the event happened. I don't remember how long, maybe was it like six hours before the occurrence of 9-11? What are your thoughts on that? Because I can't even begin to have thoughts on that, except what the fuck. They did find with the terrorist September 11th attack that the, the deviations began about six hours or something like that before. I don't know that that's the common tendency for these kinds of events. But for that particular one in the paper that Dean and, and Roger wrote, they did note that. And that is very interesting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, one is tended to think that there's a maybe on, a, on some level a sense of precognition that's going on where people are have this sense and that that is what may be moving it. I mean, that's one idea. Maybe there are others. Now, this kind of question, though, leads into another class of studies where some people have found that when people, they look at plane crashes and they found that there's actually a correlation with people who decide not to get on the plane. You, you could assume that there's just a random variable on people who miss their flights or decide not to, but it turns out that it's correlated with planes that have an accident. And they found that, that sometimes people have a premonition of horrible accidents and things like that. So there, there may be some justification for thinking that some people have some kind of precognition. Dean and, and Roger would be good people to ask that question. I guess we don't have them right here, but you know, the, it is a very good one. Well, I'm adding that to my list to ask them when I get them on this one day. And, you know, you've talked a bit and wrote a bit about some of Dr. Dean Radin's experiments. He's one of my favorites, too. And you brought up his experiments with the double slit. So would you mind explaining a little bit about the double slit and then Dr. Dean Radin's take on it? Yes, Dean Radin and his colleagues developed a protocol where they, they take the double slit quantum experiment. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners might know what this is, but I should say a few more words. So you can sort of imagine a tube that's shooting a laser beam, okay? And this laser beam, there's like two different slits that it might go through, okay? And what happens, what we observe is on the other side of the double slit, we see a 
pattern, a fringe pattern, as if the particles coming out of the, the laser are actually part of a wave. And so then if you close one of the holes, it turns out instead of a, the fringe pattern, you only get a dot on the other side as if all the ones are going out of the, uh, the one singular hole. So the idea is if we don't know which hole the particles go through, we get, we get a wave pattern which has both possibilities and both possibilities actually interfere with each other the way that waves do. What Dean and his colleagues have done is they've, they've had different people focus their attention on the setup, and they actually mentally try to imagine the, the beam falling on a target. And they found that the fringe pattern is affected. It becomes more narrow when, when they have these people focus on it. So it's an example of where the intention has an effect on these quantum processes, except in this case, it does involve conscious attention, unlike the Global Consciousness Project. And this is consistent with what I believe to be my own theory in the sense that if we're, if our consciousness is connected to this deeper field of potentiality, then which isn't, which in turn is connected to the potential of all things. So if we're trying to influence a, I'm not suggesting we can influence a lot. It's not like one of those Marvel movies where someone has telekinesis powers and they can just move objects around the world. I think Magneto was the one who could, you know, if it was a magnetic or conductive material, he could just move it all over the place. But that's not what, it's, it's, it's a very small, subtle effect. But another sort of wrinkle in his experiments is he found that meditators, people who were, let's say, trained to focus their attention, they had a significantly higher effect on those fringe patterns. And I found that to be very interesting. The double slit experiment was first done, I guess, I believe, by Einstein in the 1920s. Am I correct? Or 40s? It wasn't Einstein. I think it was young. But I don't remember the exact date. It probably was even before the... 40s. It might have been close to the turn of the century, like maybe the 1920s or something like that. But it definitely has been thought to be the iconic experiment to understand quantum mechanics. How was Dr. Dean Radin's use of the double slit experiment different than the traditional one? Was it just that he brought in meditators and compared them to regular people observing? The traditional experiment doesn't really involve any attempts to influence the pattern. It's just simply observing that there's a, a wave pattern. And I think before the double slip, people might have thought, well, the particles that are coming out, or they're, they're particles, so they're all going to just hit the target wherever it's aimed. But then, you know, the double slip shows that there's a wave and a particle aspect to, to these particles. There's a couple of researchers before Dean, and Dean and his colleagues built on it, I don't recall exactly what the differences between Dean and, and the ones that came about, I think maybe about 10 years before or something like that, Jeffers, and I think I forgot the other one. But, but basically, I think they all mainly try to test the idea of uh, these things. I think one innovation that Dean did, I think he did something on the internet too. He had people online trying to do things. And I think he found a significant effect on that too. But I don't recall all the differences, the innovations that Dean did. I know you also talked a bit about why the Gunsfeld experiment 
was so strong in terms of your theory and for Psy in general. Do you mind explaining what the Gansfeld is and why you focused on it in your papers? The Gansfeld, it's a very interesting experiment. It probably is the experiment that I think most Psy researchers feel has the strongest evidence, although there are other ones that have strong evidence too. So the Gansfeld involves a sensory deprivation in its protocol. So the idea is that we let the participants listen to white noise. If you want to Google Gansfeld, choose the image option, you'll see people with these white ping pong balls, or maybe there'll be red ping pong balls covering their eyes. I will add these photos that George is describing about the Gansfeld experiment in the show notes, so you can see them there. And so the idea is without people engaged in sensory inputs, the mind is in a little bit better place to maybe perceive what we might call psi kinds of inputs. I didn't put it in the paper, but this might be another aspect of where the thinking of the brain is a filter, because if the brain doesn't have the sensory inputs, it might be able to be more open to these other aspects. Say the brain is connected to this deeper field of consciousness, it might be more sensitive to various kinds of information from there. So anyway, the participants, in a number of ways, their sensory inputs are blocked. But then you have a a sender, someone who's looking at some sort of picture that's been randomly selected. And the way the experiment has developed, there's four pictures, but one is randomly selected. And the participant and the one who's controlling the experiment doesn't know which particular experiment. So then the perceiver, or rather the, the sender, looks at the picture. And then Ultimately, the receiver, the one who has the ping pong balls on their eyes, has to select the right picture. And there's a 25% chance that they'll select the right one just randomly, just by chance. But they found in the experiment, that is by pooling a lot of the experiments together, that there's a about a 30% chance of the 30% hit rate, which is they found to be very actually, when you have to do the experiment a large number of times, but they found found it to be statistically significant. And so the way I think this fits with my own thinking is that we are connected to this deeper field, and so, which, which is a field of potentiality. So we're able to, in some ways, sense or connect with what the sender has been focusing on as well. By the way, I forgot to mention something about Dean Radin's double slit experiment. Dr. Morris, Morris Friedman, he has a different, it's not exactly a double slit experiment, but he does another experiment with random processes. And what Dr. Morris, Dr. Friedman does is he's found that if he can massage certain aspects of, of our cortex, the frontal lobe, in a way that he thinks is kind of reducing the ability of the brain to filter information. He uses lasers, right? Or like a laser that does something to the frontal cortex of either the left or right frontal lobe. Is that correct? I believe so. But the effect is basically to reduce, at least in theory, the brain's ability to filter certain aspects of our processing. And this way helps to open our awareness to other aspects, which allow us to influence sort of an anomalous influence of those random processes. Yeah. And I remember he presented actually at the SSE and it was interesting because he noticed that when he did the lasers that shut off the right frontal lobe, 
he had people trying to use their psychokinesis, their mind over matter, to push a random arrow where the arrow would go down or up, or I forget if it's down or up or left or right, when people's frontal lobe was turned off using this, I guess, I believe type of laser, they had significantly higher results in causing an effect. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, I did not do the best job describing Morris Friedman's experiment. So I'm going to edit in my explaining it a little better here. Dr. Friedman had a device or type of laser that was able to inhibit activity in targeted areas of the brain, similar to if someone had brain lesions. So he took one group and he inhibited their left frontal lobe of their brain. He took another group and inhibited their right frontal lobe. He took a control group and he sent waves that actually did nothing to their brain. He then had a random event generator with an arrow that would move randomly to the left or randomly to the right. He directed people to try to use PK, psychokinesis, their mind's ability to affect matter, to move it more to the right. The control group and the group with the right brain frontal lobe inhibitions had no effect. The group with the left brain frontal lobe inhibitions moved the arrow significantly more to the right. So it seems to be that our left brain frontal lobe, our left logical brain, is inhibiting our abilities to do psi and have maybe psychic abilities, which is just really interesting and consistent with some of the research that Dr. Jeffrey Tarrant has done, scanning medium brains activity. And you can learn more about Dr. Tarrant's research in my episode number 44, which is titled Mapping Mediums, Brains, and Brainwave Patterns with Dr. Jeffrey Tarrant. So I just do want to back up two things about the Gonsfeld. So I know you said it average or expected to be 25%, but it was 30% results. Sometimes people say, oh, well, that's 5%. That's nothing. But if you actually know this stuff, it is so significant. And some people also did much more than that. And if a few people show they have results, I go by what I've talked about on here before, the white crow theory, that if a few people do it, that means it exists as a phenomenon, just some of us better than others. Yeah, that's a that was a very interesting uh, phrase that I think it was William James that coined the, the phrase the white crow he says all you have to have is like one white crow to be able to say well not all crows are black you know <laughs> so it's a good point that i i think the the p-value from the meta-analysis available on the gansfeld is it's like about t- less than 10 to the minus 16 which is an astronomically small number that, that is the p-value is the probability that, that you could have that effect just due to chance. So the likelihood is just astronomically small that you could have some sort of spurious result across all those um, experiments. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. 
This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, (laughs) open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy Podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Another thing about the Gonsfeld that you write about that so significant is bringing in Ray Hyman too. I mean, in terms of skepticism, it really pushed the respect for psi research in the next level. That's another, I think, another reason why the Gansfeld protocol, there's a kind of interest around it because you did have a collaboration between psi skeptic Ray, Ray Hyman and uh, Charles Honerton. They together worked on developing the protocol. So you have a, it's kind of unusual to have a experimental protocol where you have a a noted skeptic who's actually contributing. Now, it's worth pointing out that Ray Hyman, after incorporating all his suggestions, and Alnerton actually collaborated with Daryl Bem on the Gansfeld, he he still would not support it. So that's another interesting aspect about it. You have a size skeptic, they incorporate all his but he still couldn't quite go along with it. But, you know, it is it is noteworthy that, that they incorporated all of his suggestions. And in fact, the results got stronger because what has been found in the Gansfeld is that the higher quality experiments have had slightly better results, which is what you would expect if it's a real effect. And what does Ray Hyman have to say about that? I thought he admitted that there was something going on. Since they followed all his protocols. Yeah, he couldn't quite accept it. I don't remember his his exact uh, rationalizations, but he couldn't quite cross the line and say, okay, you've convinced me. So I think that it probably put him in a difficult position. He probably was expecting that things would go away once you incorporated all his suggestions, and then he could write a paper about how the psi isn't real, but then that didn't work out, and so he couldn't quite... (laughs) He didn't know what else to say or do, but it's a very interesting aspect of this literature. This is one of the questions I think all of us have as we start delving in and seeing how much data there is, how many valid experiments. What do you think are some of the reasons that Psy is dismissed so quickly by a huge portion of scientists and researchers? Well, that's an excellent question. I think about that question a lot myself. Well, first of all, what they argue is that often is that psi is inconsistent with well-established scientific principles. That's the argument that I think Reber and Alcock, when they tried to do a rebuttal paper against Etzel Cardinia's paper where he summarized the psi data, they were saying, well, this data is impossible. Now, I've argued that that's, it is the case in scientific history that a lot of things that we thought were established scientific principles turned out to be wrong in other domains. And the truth is, we don't really understand very much about consciousness and quantum mechanics. So, and, and this, is, this is the area where the side data falls. So we really don't understand those areas sufficiently. But this is my own personal opinion, but I think a lot of the skeptics in their minds, think of psi the way it's it's very difficult if something is linked to something like the supernatural. For them, the supernatural is maybe the antithesis of good scientific inquiry. So anything that can be linked in some way 
It's almost as if Sci has a bad brand. I think a lot of universities, it's very important their brand. So if you do something that a lot of people think of as, as being maybe lumped with Ouija boards and ghosts, then they're just kind of like say, okay, no, we don't want to go there. <laughs> it's just too dangerous for our reputation. But, you know, another reason I think, Liz, is that the Psy data, some of the Psy researchers disagree with me on this, but a lot of, if you look at the laboratory data, it's actually pretty small or the effects are modest. So is it the sort of thing can you use to go into a casino and win a bunch of money? Doesn't seem so. At least nobody's done that yet. And, and so a lot of people, I think, think, well, you know, if it's kind of small, does it really matter? What if it was real? So what? How would it change our world? And I think that that's a question that doesn't get addressed as much in the Psy literature, which I think is an important question. I mean, let's think for a moment. Suppose the Psy data is real. Suppose what is it? What is it telling us about the world? What is it telling us about this world we live in? You know, what? How would our view of reality change? if we were to accept the side data? And uh, I think that's a very interesting question that doesn't get maybe quite as much attention, but if we had a good answer, that might get, I, I think that might lead to people giving it more attention. That's an interesting thought. And I've noticed that some too, that very smart people as well expect it to be 100% or it doesn't work at all. Like I was listening to a podcast talking about psychic mediums and psi. And I mean, they didn't know anything about like the research of Dr. Julie Beichel or Division of Perceptual Studies. They just were talking about stuff that you and I would probably find absurd as well. But mm -hmm. one of their thoughts was, oh, well, then if it exists, how come they're not all stopping plane crashes or how come they aren't winning the lottery? <laughs> and they ask, you know, more pseudo mediums, I think, and psychics like, why? Well, why haven't you ever won the lottery? And they say, oh. I'm beyond money. This is a spiritual thing. Whereas the mediums I've talked to, the ones that participate, they're like, look, we'd love to win the lottery. It's just not perfect. They're like, some say they've tried and they'll get 90% of the numbers correct, or they'll get all the numbers correct, but they don't know which state or which day. It's like, that, but that's still significantly beyond the odds of chance. It's just not 100%. So that's something that I've noticed is a huge misconception. Tragic story, Lloyd Arbuck once told me about a psychic medium who started having dreams about a plane crash. He knew which airport and he knew what was going to happen to the plane. He had no idea what date or what airline. Oh, wow. So I believe it was the main Chicago airport. And what's he going to do? I mean, it apparently tortured him for years because he even tried to find a way to reach the airport. But what's he going to say? Yeah. Ground all your airplanes indefinitely because I'm a psychic medium and I know something's going to happen. One of the difficulties with this notion that it's either it either happens or it doesn't, or we have these scientific laws and we have the right circumstances, we're going to be able to predict with 100% certainty, or it's not real. That's just simply not the way a lot of areas of science are. I mean, it's arguably true in some areas, let's say, in, in certain, like classical physics. You know, here's, a, here's an example. A lifelong smoker is more likely to develop lung cancer, okay? But if you know everything about that smoker, everything, you still cannot say with 100% certainty that he will eventually succumb to lung cancer. And so what a lot of people who study causality, they especially in biology and other areas, it's you have to think in terms of dispositions and tendencies 
and probabilities. And that's very real, very rigorous, very scientific. But it's just simply when you when you go into the biological sciences or the life sciences, you simply can't pin down your causality the way that often psi skeptics seem to seem to think. And of course, in quantum mechanics, it's also the case that, you know, you have this, ultimately, you have this equation that's in terms of probability. So you can't, you know, say uh, with certainty, even if you have perfect information, you can't say how things are going to go. So I think it's really a short-sighted view of how much of the nature of causality works in science. Okay, so I want to get into another question. You talk a lot about the hard problem of consciousness, you know, from David Chalmers, if you don't mind talking about that a touch, and then why you think the current paradigm of materialism, which means that consciousness is created and hosted by our brain, why you think that doesn't answer the hard problem of consciousness? The hard problem of consciousness, that's a a phrase that was turned by David Chalmers, and oh, it's interesting that you should ask me that because recently, I, it might have been in Nature, but there was a famous bet, I think 25 years ago, with the scientists Christoph and David Chalmers. And it's, it's interesting, Christoph is a, one of the pioneers of, of IAT, Integrated Information Theory. And he suggested 25 years ago, he, he made a bet with David Chalmers that science is going to be able to explain consciousness. And 25 years has come and gone, and, and, and David Chalmers won a case of wine from that. And he thought, uh, remind me again, not David Chalmers, the other one, Chris? Christoph Koch. Co- Chris- I, I may not be pronouncing his right, name right. Christoph Coach, I think, is the right way. Christoph Coach, And he was a materialist. He said consciousness is created by a brain, and science will be able to prove it within 20 years. Yeah. Now, to be fair to uh, Christoph Koch, he's worked with, uh, I'm sometimes bad with my pronunciation, but Tolini was the main developer of integrated information theory. And in their framework, they do, they do throw out the suggestion that there might be some panpsychism involved. But basically, it was there, he was claimed that science, and I think he was thinking integrated information theory would account for consciousness. And and so that hasn't been the case. What is integrated information theory? So filter integrated information theory, that's your theory that (laughs) consciousness is filtered by a brain, which acts like, you know, our phone filtering from the internet or an old fashioned radio. Now, so what exactly is integrated information theory? So integrated information theory, it's a theory that our brains, the structure of our brains, the way it's wired in terms of integrated information is what produces consciousness. So you might think that our, certainly our brains are very, very complex networks of neurons, but the advocates of IIT or information integrated theory argue it's not just the structure, but it's the, the way that it's structured in an integrated way. And the, one of the ways they argue this is that if you consider our conscious experience, we see all kinds of differences in our environment. We see the blue. I'm looking at a blue wall now, but I'm looking at a computer where I see your face, but I also hear a dog barking in the background as well as a jackhammer and, uh, and all these different differences. So you could argue that all these different sensory inputs make up my conscious experience. But they also argue it's not just these differences, but it's also the way it's integrated as a seamless whole. 
And so it's not just the fact that I'm seeing the blues, hearing the jackhammer and so forth, but they're all seamlessly woven together as, as, a, as a unified experience. So it's kind of both simultaneously differences, but also integrated together. And so they argue that our brain works the same way. The nature of our brain is to process all these differences, but it's integrated so that it can bring them all together. And so that, in a nutshell, I think is the, is the idea of their theory, of their framework. And they have it, they're able to put it in a mathematical framework. One of the things that they argue is why their theory is, is on some good footing is that it turns out that some of the more integrated aspects of our brain, like the cortex, is more associated with consciousness rather than the cerebellum, which has more neurons, but the neurons are not really integrated in the same way. So it's the, the way we can think of the structure, how the neurons are kind of connected together, leads to our conscious experience. Aside from your, that you've developed your own theory, why do you say both materialism or the integrate information theory, which is a form of materialism, why do you think specifically that those don't answer the heart problem of consciousness or explain consciousness? So David Chalmers, who's coined the term the heart problem, he argued that physicalist explanations or materialist explanations are not sufficient to explain conscious. And I think the best way to explain it is that, well, I'll just borrow from Chalmers. He said, when we look at the physical world, we can explain everything in terms of functions and mechanism. And that's true. You know, if you get on an airplane, you know that how it works through the various functions and mechanisms of that plane. And those go down to, let's say, the way we understand the laws of nature, what we might think of the regularities we observe in nature. But consciousness seems to be something different. It doesn't really... Chalmers argued that the functions or the, the mechanisms just don't really seem to account for consciousness. And that's primarily because when we talk about ultimately what the physical world is, we can imagine the particles and the waves or the, or the different laws of nature that govern them. There is no descriptions of consciousness. There's no, there's no reason to think that a, a particle is conscious so if we have these non-conscious particles, how is it that we get consciousness? It seems to require some sort of magical or miraculous kind of emergence. And so therefore, it, he said that this problem is, he coined it, is the hard problem. So anyway, that's it as far as in a nutshell anyway. Once I heard that in the first place, it was transformative for me and my grief and hope and this research because I was like, yeah, it's it actually seems like almost more of a leap of faith that this material neurons and all that would create the complexity of consciousness than a filter. It seems more things in our world work as filters. Now this and this is where I think a lot of materialists or physicalists that this is the debate. They say that, well, we do have examples of emergence, so why not consciousness? And so it the debate can go back and forth. Another additional problem, though, is that how do we test their theories? Let's say a physicalist says, well, I believe we've got a theory that we're, of how consciousness happens. Let's say I've got consciousness in this test tube that has all these chemicals. But 
we can't really observe the consciousness, right? It's a different next level kind of difficulty in how we confirm. We, you know, how do I know you're conscious, Liz? Well, I know because you, you behave exactly the way other human beings I interact with, so I can infer, and since I'm a human being, I can infer you're conscious. But when it comes to something that's not a human being, then it seems like it's a very different kind of thing. How do we test that? It's just very difficult, I think. And as AI and robotics grows, I have a feeling there's going to be already there's small AI social medias and other things that claim to have consciousness. So a robot built to look like a human, we know it's not human, and it has an AI and it says, I'm conscious. So we don't know if it is. And then also, I think materialists would then say, look, you built a robot that's conscious. Let's say we believe it's conscious. Then they'll say, see, consciousness is created. Whereas the other thought is, well, we also maybe built a a filter, something that's downloading from the consciousness bank. Yeah, there seems to be no, there's no way we could really prove. And I guess there's all the experiments you've talked about, near-death experiences. There seems to be so much phenomena that occurs that is inexplicable if the materialist consciousness created by a brain emergent theory is true. To me, in my mind, there's a particular area of philosophical literature that's associated with Bertrand Russell's arguments that I think, in my view, has influenced my thinking about it a lot. And Bertrand Russell argued that despite all the successes, can't really tell us ultimately what is at the core essence of reality. It gives us explanations in mathematical forms that tell us, well, this is how matter behaves, or this is how subatomic particles behave and so forth, but it doesn't tell us what they actually are. And he, so in other words, it doesn't tell us, doesn't reveal the intrinsic aspect of matter. And he also argued that the only thing we know of that has some sort of intrinsicness is our conscious experience. So Russell supported this view, which I think has gotten a lot of attention recently, that consciousness, the source of consciousness, is this intrinsic aspect of reality. And a lot of people who've been influenced by these ideas have been like, for example, uh, Philip Goff and others have argued that this suggests a kind of panpsychic view, that is to say that maybe particles are are sentient on some level. So in my view, getting back to the artificial intelligence, the fact that it can fool us into thinking that it's consciousness is not really very convincing to me if consciousness is rooted in this deeper ontological aspect of our reality. So you also mentioned about emergent. There is emergent phenomena. What's an example? Oh, yeah. Well, for example, you could argue that water is emerges from hydrogen and oxygen. So if you knew everything about those elements or those atoms, and you didn't know anything about water, but then you put them together and water happened, you'd say, wow, look at that. <laughs> water came out, of, came out of this. And another example might be a tornado. Let's say you have the wind and the, the air molecules and the temperatures and, you know, has all these conditions. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's this form of a funnel cloud that emerges, right? So even though it's really nothing but the movement of those particles, 
there's a sense that it's something new that has emerged, okay? There are a lot of things that do seem to emerge, maybe certain types of traffic patterns. Once the traffic gets to be at a certain level, then all of a sudden there's these traffic jams or certain patterns. You know, there, there's also, and this is something that amazes me, I think you've, you know, so, sometimes you see these starlings, the, these birds, they're flying around and sometimes they seem like they're linked together as, as if they're one organism. And there's like a pattern of these, like maybe thousands of birds, they form the, these amazing patterns, you know. And so anyway, those are some of the things that come to my mind about emergence. You mentioned microtubules as a possibility of how this could work. Do you mind just saying what those are and why you think they could be an answer to some of your theories? Yeah, in my own paper about the brain as a filter, I do try to argue that our brains are somehow connecting or filtering from a deeper aspect of reality, which I call a quantum ground. Okay, so the idea is that the, the realm that is, in some sense, governing quantum processes, that is the source of consciousness. And that's kind of where we're, we have our conscious experience have roots in that deeper reality. But I don't say a lot about pinning down the quantum processes. You know, how is that actually happening? In my paper, I do speculate a little bit that I think that a promising area of research is microtubules. So what those are, if you go inside the cells, uh, let's say the neurons, our cells, in those cells, there's there's something like structures that are called cytoskeletons. It's almost like you have skeletons inside the cell. These and they they allow the cell to have a kind of structure other than just be like blobs of jelly. And those structures are made of cylindrical microtubules, and and those in turn are also made up of of tubules. Okay, but. These microtubules, they have a number of properties that make them seem like they could have a quantum link, or at least a link with consciousness. So I think Stuart Hameroff has been uh, very influential in putting a lot of attention here, and he's noted that he's an anesthesiologist, and he notices that a lot of the, the anesthesia, they have a way of blocking certain aspects on these particular structures, and then consciousness fades. And in his theory, he works with Roger Penrose. Their theory is what's called, I think, orchestrated, what's it called? OOR reduction. The idea is that the wave function is collapsed in an orchestrated way, okay? And that's a little bit different from my own interpretation, but I do think that they're right in putting attention on the microtubules. There are other researchers that look at microtubules. So the idea, though, is that you have these very, 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 very tiny structures in the cells and that are, let's say, entangled together. And, and if so, then you can imagine in the brain, we have these entangled structures that are basically supporting the unified experience that we have. So um, that, in a nutshell, I think is the idea but it's, it is a bit speculative. It, is, it needs to be worked out. And it's hard. Something people don't realize about quantum mechanics is that it's highly context dependent. Okay, So a lot of what we know about quantum mechanics comes from these sorts of 
experiments where we can study what happens between, like, let's say, particles that are entangled, okay? In laboratories, you can imagine these very, very tightly controlled experiments where you're observing what happens with these particles that are connected together. But what happens when you're in a biological organism and where you're talking about literally millions of particles in a very different kind of environment? The property of context dependency in quantum mechanics refers to the property that whatever results we find in quantum mechanics hinges crucially on the experimental setup. So if we change one thing, it might change the whole apparatus. So it's very difficult to infer from experiments involving, let's say, one or two particles or maybe three particles and infer a much more complex environment such as a biological organism. And I think this is one reason why it's very, very hard going to try to take quantum mechanics into the brain, because how do you control that? How do you control that environment in the way that quantum physicists are accustomed to to doing? It's very difficult and challenging. What are your thoughts on survival of consciousness after bodily death? Based on your theories, do you think we survive? (laughs) Well, okay. So first off, there is data, such as the interviews with people who can recollect past lives, and there's also near-death experiments. I'm sorry, near-death experiences. And together, in my own theories, what suggests that our conscious experience is not really so firmly rooted in our brain. In other words, there's, there's a deeper ground that, that's part of us, or an essential part of us. All these together suggest to me that we do have reason to think um, it still may be a little bit speculative, but but it, reason to think that we survive, that our consciousness or an aspect of our consciousness survives once our body has experienced bodily death. But my theory doesn't explain a whole lot else because the structure of our brains, once it goes, I guess my theory might suggest, well, maybe we merge into this deeper ground, this deeper aspect of reality. But of course, as you know, Sometimes the near-death experiences suggest something along the lines of, well, or maybe we have a, a soul and we greet loved ones or spiritual teachers and so forth. So I would have to develop something else, I think, before I would have a framework that would try to explain that. I, I mean, one possibility is that while our brain is rooted into some sort of deeper reality, maybe there's <laughs> an in-between aspect that survives death. It's not, say, purely physical, but has maybe sort of like the way that maybe maybe there's a sense that the information of our consciousness is structured in probabilities or some subtle aspect of the material word that survives death. Now I'm getting really super speculative, but nevertheless, there may be ways of doing it, but I haven't, you know, I haven't really done it yet. So uh, it's a hard one. Do you think this bank of consciousness or fundamental, do you think it just applies to this current time and universe? Or do you think if, you know, I guess there's questions now, big bang, big crunch is the answer. (laughs) But given that there is big bang, big crunch or whatever, births of universes, deaths of universes, definitely there'll be the death of the solar system because our sun's going to go out. That's a guarantee. Does it just tie into our solar system or this iteration of our universe? Or would it be... Let's, you know, in a trillions and trillions of years, another 
Big Bang, Big Crunch or start of another universe? Would it? Well, well, those are all very difficult questions to answer, (laughs) to say the least. I will say that my notion of a quantum ground, it's I sort of borrow heavily from these philosophers, uh, Ishmael and Jonathan Schaffer, which argue that the wave function, the fact that these correlations are like instantaneous, suggests that they do happen outside of our familiar spatio-temporal order, if you will. So that suggests that this quantum ground is not really constrained by our more familiar sense of space and time. And also, if this is the most fundamental intrinsic aspect of reality, our consciousness also is rooted in this realm, domain, that is outside of our spatial temporal order. But it's very difficult to think what our conscious experiences would be if we, do, especially if we don't have time, you know, if we, how does, how does that work? It's very difficult to conceive, at least in my opinion, but there is reason to think that our, an aspect of ourselves is outside this spatial temporal order. And so therefore outside of our physical universe as well. And in fact, this quantum ground is inherently non-local. So we're, what we're really talking about, if it has consciousness in some sense, we're talking about a consciousness of the entire universe, okay? Or maybe even beyond that. So whatever exists, this conscious, this ground, it's really a, a vast consciousness that we are only sort of an a, a tiny aspect of. So I do believe that that would survive the big crunch, but what our individual aspect, how that would, you know, is something that's much more difficult. So, but it's kind of fun to speculate. Hope, I hope our individual. Well, we have our individual nature, but we also have a a deeper nature that is more than just an individual. There's a part of us that we share with all that is, I guess, at least according to some theories and according to some, I guess, spiritual and, and religious teachings as well. I like the idea of individuality, but, sure. but liking something or versus not doesn't make it true. Here's a thought experiment for you. Liz. Suppose, suppose you could live forever. Suppose you could live for billions of years. Okay. Would that ever get to be, would, would there ever be a sense where your form seems to feel a little bit like, well, you know, now I'd like to experience another form or I'd like to, I'd like to experience what a frog experiences, or I'd like to go to a different, you know, in a billion years, there might be this sense of, yeah, I really want to experience new forms, you know, and maybe you would say, maybe you would say, well, this, this form has really been great, but there's more I'd like to experience, you know, it's a thought experiment. I guess I would like to experience all different things, but still as me, not just with my individuality erased. I love the idea of having a bank of a non-local consciousness that's me, that has my personality traits and myself as a frog or another animal or beings on other planets or other humans on this planet different times. I just don't like the idea of that being completely obliterated. And, you know, I like the idea of going back to this non-local consciousness that's still me Mm-hmm. And maybe experiences as well as different planets, different solar systems, different eras, different Big Bang, Big Crunch iterations. Still yeah. being like, oh, remember that time I was Liz? Just like I can remember being a small child. All these have a difference 
and a physical differences and a common thread too. But there's still that common thread. And I guess mm-hmm. that's how I envision it in the way I would most like it to be. But but I also think the data could back that up. I don't think that's solely wishful thinking. You know, um, Rupert Sheldrake has written a paper speculating what if the sun is conscious? And he, he argues that stars, I guess, are conscious. And he, he it's a very interesting paper. And he, he makes a kind of case where we should at least consider that possibility. And that's maybe difficult for me to consider, but just the possibilities of consciousness are probably just way bigger than what we of what we might be able to conceive right now. But that's a interesting, you know, thing to consider, I think. Kind of limitless when you start playing with it, really. And it seems like most likely it's much better than materialism where we're just wiped out one day and this is it. <laughs> and and even within materialism, I still think there can be a form of survival. That was the very first thing I thought of is if my brain neurons created a consciousness once, yeah. That's how I found Dr. Jim Tucker in past lives. Is yeah. If we were materialism, it's more likely that a, the accident of brain neurons would create another you, not mm-hmm. you as George or me as Liz, but at least another experience of consciousness again as a material being. The odds are more likely that that would happen again, where you'd get to experience at least a form of consciousness than never again. So the thought that materialism insists upon total obliteration doesn't make much sense to me either. Liz, it sounds like you talk to a lot of very interesting people. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And we're wrapping up on a, the end and I could talk to you all day. This is so interesting. And as we did talk all the time at the um, yeah. conference. We should plug that conference, Society for Scientific Exploration. It's a wonderful conference to meet all kinds of people exploring all kinds of interesting things. And there's going to be, I believe people can purchase videos of the most recent conference. Am I correct? That's right. Well, it'll be online. It may be that if you join a member, you have access to all the videos. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but they will be available online. You can Google Society for Scientific Exploration. And they'll be meeting in, I think, what is it, Boulder next year, University of Colorado. So that should be fun and interesting. And I'll go back to that. I'll also put them in the show notes. And you also gave a good talk at them, which I can put in the show notes, given we have the, if you just want to give the title of your talk and topic, I know we didn't get into this as much. I, I think the title of my talk was Hume Paradigms and the Debate on Psy. And in a nutshell, I argue that a lot of the Psy skeptics who invoke Hume do not really understand his, uh, a lot of his arguments very well. And that if you you look carefully at Hume, you see that there's a lot of very interesting things that you can take from that. Hume was much more skeptical on our own ability to know the world. He he criticized people who argued the, the existence of miracles, but he also looked carefully at our own ability to characterize the world in terms of laws of nature. And so a lot of size skeptics who use, well, arguments such as, well, Psy violates the laws of nature. Humans say we really don't know enough about the laws of nature to be really sure about those kinds of arguments. So I think Hume is uh, a lot of very valuable things that can come from studying Hume a little bit more.
was a great talk. And so, yeah, I'll post about the conference. I'll be attending next year again. Club Care is a charity organization founded by Emma Justice after the loss of her father, David Justice, to glioblastoma. Club Care is dedicated to supporting children and families dealing with cancer. They strive to create joyful moments through meaningful projects impacting individual families, as well as larger oncology communities. Funding for all projects is raised through philanthropic donations. Go to makingheadway.org backslash clubcare programs for a complete list of programs and activities. Hi, can I ask all of you listening a favor? Would you mind rating and reviewing my book, WTF Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife on Amazon. Authors depend so much on ratings. They are crucial to the algorithm and Amazon making sure this book is seen. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. For this week's question, Emma asks, have you ever had any experiences before studying all of this that you look back on and see differently? Um, I think there's a lot of experiences I feel that about. One really interesting experience, I don't know if I think differently about it now, but I just kind of tucked it away and dismissed it, was I had Reiki once when I was a teenager. I didn't even know what it was. I was away at a spa with my mom. I looked at the list of services and I just had never heard of it. So I asked what it was. And for anyone who doesn't know, Reiki is a type of energy healing. You can Google more about it, but essentially it's where like an energy healer or Reiki master as they're officially called, which sounds a little intense, but that's, I think, what they're officially called are Reiki healers. They don't actually touch you and they use energy to heal or to rejuvenate. And I just thought, wow, that kind of sounds like bullshit, but this is just what would be called a quote unquote normal spa. All the other treatments were like massage, facial, and we were there a few days. So I had done some of those already and I was just curious. So what happened was this woman held her hands, I guess, like an inch from you, which is what they do. And my eyes were closed. I was lying down on the massage table and I started to feel all this heat going through wherever she was going over. They start at your head and work their way down to your feet. And as she worked over each area, I felt this sort of like very soothing, healing, feeling heat build up and it stayed. And then she went over to my right knee as she worked her way down. And my right knee had been hurting me a little, nothing significant. I wasn't even paying attention, just had been feeling almost like a mild pulled muscle for probably a while. And I suddenly felt this severe pain shoot through my right knee, like build up and then just shoot out of it. 
And then my knee felt completely better. And when we were done, she said, oh, I fixed your right knee. There was an energy block there and I released it. And I honestly didn't know what to make of that. And my right knee was better and didn't hurt again. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. And where can our listeners follow you, find you, stay up to date on what you're working on? Oh, well, thank you. I don't I don't have a, let's see. Um, I think if, if you just Google George R. Williams, Psy Data, P-S-I, George R. Williams, Psy, some of my papers should come up. And I think Google Scholar, you could say George R. Williams, P-S-I, and use those keywords, and then um, you should be able to find some of my research work. Maybe at some future point, I think Jeffrey Mishlove will interview me for his YouTube show. So at some point in the future, if you listen to Jeffrey or if you watch Jeffrey Mishlove's interviews, I should be on there as well. As of now, George's interview on Jeffrey Mishlove's new Thinking Aloud podcast is out, and I will link to it in the show notes. And I'll link to papers and your, given that I can link to your SSE talk, if it's not behind a firewall, but regardless, I'll link to how to access it. So thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation and hopefully I'll see you at the conference. Thank you, Liz. It's been wonderful to see you again. And I'm so glad you're doing, you're exploring these, these very interesting and important questions. We're all trying to explore this reality. We should not think that we understand the reality, we should we should just say, wow, what an awesome reality. And let's just explore, you know, this wonderful reality and, and see what we can learn and then share, compare notes. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to WTFJustHappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened?, a sciencey skeptic explores grief, healing, and evidence of an afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just wanna say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.